Thank you for that rich singing. We need to hear one another speak of those truths, not only in our worship to the Lord, but in reminding one another of these great promises. That song, Day by Day, is an old song. I'm sure you grew up singing that, uh, but there, there's a lot there. That, that sweet little rolling melody is pretty demanding in its text that we have faith in our God who day by day gives each day what he deems best. Uh, that is not easy to hear uh, and to believe. And so take all these songs, take your bulletin throughout the week and find the, somebody singing it on YouTube or something or just sing them yourself, but uh, take this truth with you as you go this week. Uh, it will foster thanksgiving. Second Chronicles chapter 7. Today we conclude our sermon series on commitment. We've been trying to better understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So we've considered commitment to joining a church, what that means in obligation, member to church, church to member. We've studied our commitment to praying for the church, that ancient spiritual discipline that so often eludes us. We've considered our commitment to giving to the church, to serving the church. Then we, on Reformation Sunday, considered our commitment to knowing and doing God's word under that banner of sola scriptura, scripture alone, our sole authority for our faith and the practice of it. Last week, we considered a commitment to discipleship and what that means for doing life together. Today, our commitment to thanksgiving. You see, a disciple follows his leader. A disciple is a student who learns from his teacher. And we could also say a disciple is one who does the will of his master. And when we put it in that context, thanksgiving comes alive in 1 Thessalonians when we hear, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. There are many aspects of God's will that we can wrestle with. You know, do I move my family across the country? Do I take this job? Do we have more children? There's all kinds of questions that swirl in our heads about the will of God. And yet, in some aspects of God's will, it's blatant and clear in Scripture, and this is one of them. Give thanks. This is God's will. So as a disciple this morning, you must commit to thanksgiving. And unlike some of these matters, I might not be able to tell you exactly how you should serve I might not be able to tell you how much money you should give, how many minutes you should pray, but when it comes to thanksgiving, I can speak in nearly universal language. In everything, give thanks. I could begin to wander into all kinds of applications and just not go wrong because it's clear in all circumstances, it is God's will for us to, to sift that down to some kind of truth about God that lends itself to me giving thanks. We're headed for 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 3. 
us leaving here and throughout this week saying, the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever. When you think of classic sermon preparation, your introduction and your points and your conclusion that calls people to action, well, that's where we're heading. That each of us would go through this week believing, articulating, demonstrating that the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. That's what we're aiming for. But I want us to kind of walk through this text and follow the path to see how they got there, how they got to verse 3, recognizing the Lord's goodness and his faithfulness. So let's make sure we understand first the story that's unfolding here. It's the story of the temple being built. In chapter 3 and verse 2, we see that the temple construction begins in the second month of the fourth year of Solomon's reign. From 2 Kings, we'll learn that he finishes in the 11th year and the 8th month of his reign. So scripture's somewhat careful to tell us this took a little bit more than seven years to build this temple. Well now, coming up to our text, in chapter 6, we have the record of Solomon's prayer of dedication. And as was mentioned earlier, we have one of these few references in the scriptures to some kind of platform that was used for a better communication of truth to the masses. We'll see it again in the return of the exiles from captivity uh, with Ezra and Nehemiah and a a platform that somehow would elevate, yes, the word and the message, but even the practical element of communication. So pulpits don't have a great systematic theology behind them, but there are some practical and perhaps illustrative purposes for them. Solomon begins this prayer of dedication. In a sense, it continues on in chapter 7 after our text, because most of his prayer is, if this happens, then God, please do this. If our enemies overtake us, please deliver us. If we turn from sin, please forgive us. That's a common theme. We see that one in verse 27. Hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servant. It's again in verse 30. Then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive. Again in verse 39. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their pleas. Maintain their cause and forgive your people if they have sinned against you. This theme, though, continues in chapter 7 in probably the most well-known if-then of Solomon's prayer. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then will I, as this chapter has unfolded already, hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. So that's the context here. It's, It's all of this, we know what could happen and when it does, you be faithful still. We know what's going to happen, but demonstrate your goodness. We know we might wander or we might suffer. Prove again that you're faithful, that your love endures forever. That's the theme that's unfolding here, but there's no denying that in chapter 6 and in chapter 7, there is this concern that sin could get in the way of this free celebration of God's goodness and his steadfast love. 
So much so that even as this prayer is coming to an end, we read in verse 41, And now arise, O Lord God, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Now, we often hear resting place and we think like of death, like they've gone on to their rest. Or, Well, no, Solomon is just simply saying we built this temple which has not only the holy place, but then the holy of holies where God's presence would indeed dwell. So Solomon is just simply saying, Lord, it's done. We've done exactly what you've asked. And now keep your word and come to that place where you would dwell or rest upon. You and the ark of your might, let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Remember your steadfast love for David, your servant. So sin is in the back of their minds, repeated over and over again. If we sin, forgive. If we sin, forgive. And now at the conclusion, there's something about being clothed in salvation so that people can rejoice in God's goodness. So just... Hear all that and know that that's setting the table now for what unfolds in chapter 7. We've just heard like the actual script of the prayer, and now the writer is going to show us, tell us by narration what unfolds next. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, well, what happens with a lot of our prayers that finish? You might hear a, a murmur of amens around. Well, this was a little different. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. We read about this a few chapters earlier when they first brought the ark into the temple. Similar occurrence of the glory of the Lord filling the temple. And in that case, they couldn't continue with their music and the planned order of service. We see it again. The priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped. So much of the Old Testament is instructive on worship in the language of physical posture. We don't make much of physical posture anymore in our worship. Perhaps you do in private. Perhaps you kneel by a bed or a chair or a desk and pray, reflecting that submission and sweet dependence on this God that you're actually believing is going to do something in response to your prayer. Maybe you lay on the ground and plead for the salvation of that person you love. Maybe you've tasted that desperation before. Maybe posture means something to you, but in a lot of our worship, our posture is either standing or sitting. Uh, we, We don't call on our bodies to be very emotive or expressive at times. Perhaps that's a flaw in our worship. Perhaps at the very least, we should observe the posture of worship and and see what it's indicating, what it's pointing to, so that whether or not we reflect that posture, our hearts are, are 
experiencing those same burning passions and desires uh, for God and for his truth. They fall on their faces and worship. And that worship takes the form of thanksgiving. They gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, His steadfast love endures forever. Let me offer you a summary of verses 1 to 3 that really shape our summary, our theme, our big idea. This could be the intro and the conclusion. We could finish the sermon right now when I give you this sentence, but we won't. When God makes his presence known, we've seen that. Solomon prays, there's this pause, and the narrator picks up his pen and tells us what happens next. God makes his presence known. When God makes his presence known, his people respond with worship. Worship is always a response. No one in the history of humanity has ever worshipped God proactively. It's always a response. Our existence is in a response to God's desire. He created. We're only here as the next thing. God did something. God is, therefore we worship. There has to be something to treasure, something to value, something to respond to. So recognize that response and and maybe recognize the deficiency in your worship that isn't reactive. We're not supposed to be reactive to our kids when they frustrate us and we just burst out with some response. We are supposed to be reactive all day long when we see God doing something, we're supposed to just react. We might call it a knee-jerk reaction. The doctor thumps on your knee there to hit that nerve to see if, all right, the nerves are working good. Your leg kicks. We call it a knee-jerk reaction. You can't control it. Go ahead, tap on your knee right now if you have to to (laughs) see if you can get it to happen. I know you're going to do it, right? Our worship this week, our thanksgiving, shouldn't just be, well, now's the time we set aside to be thankful. It should just be that twitching reaction all day long because we just know God is good. It's a response of worship. So when God makes his presence known, his people respond with worship, giving thanks for his goodness and steadfast love. A response of worship that looks more often than not like thanksgiving for goodness and steadfast love. I want us to see just a couple of simple points. Keep that big idea in mind because that sentence captures what happens in verses 1 through 3. But I want you to see that this big idea... When God makes his presence known, his people respond with worship in the giving of thanks because God is good and his mercy endures forever. This is true in the Old Testament shadow. We'll call this story a shadow, an illustration, meaning the 
fullness is yet to come. A shadow is cast by the substance. So we're kind of doing it backwards. Instead of seeing the substance and then looking at its shadow, we're catching the shadow laying over this text, and we're going to get to the substance. So God making his presence known, people responding in worship, thanksgiving, God is good, his love endures forever. That is true in this Old Testament story. I want you to look back in chapter 6 and see a question that hangs over this text. In verse 18, in the middle of Solomon's prayer, he asks a question. He says, Will God indeed dwell with man on earth? But will God indeed dwell with man on earth? It's somewhat rhetorical. He's marveling that God will do that. They just built him a house. His presence is going to dwell in this temple. We know that's going to happen, and it does happen in our next chapter. So the question isn't wondering if this is going to happen. He's kind of marveling that this God of heaven who made all these things that went into the building of the temple, he made these people that built the temple, that God is going to dwell there among them. What a wonder. But it's also a question that's heavy with foreshadowing. It helps us understand that God dwelling in this temple, the literal temple Solomon built, in the form of this glorious smoke or cloud, was but a shadow of things to come. So when we think of this big idea being true in this Old Testament story, We hear Solomon's question, will God indeed dwell with men on earth? And we say, yes, he will, because we see it in this story, chapter 7, verse 1. God makes his presence known. But I want us to think of how he makes his presence known, because remember, we're going to see if there's a greater fulfillment. Well, how does God make his presence known? First, fire came down from heaven. Pretty significant pretty demonstrable, pretty impressive. Not the only time we'll see it in the Old Testament. Sons of Thunder, I think, in the New Testament wanted it to happen. So this isn't unheard of, and yet that's a pretty significant response. God's making his presence known, first, in fire from heaven. Secondly, in the consuming of sacrifices. This fire comes down, and it's not fireworks in the sky. It comes down and consumes the sacrifices that were prepared on the altar. And then we have this expression, that his glory filled the temple. And that's, that had to be tangible in some sense because the priests couldn't go about their work for a few moments. So fire from heaven Consuming the sacrifices, his glory fills the temple. That's God making his presence known, and you know the rest of the story. The people respond in worship, and it sounds like praising God for goodness and steadfast love. So the big idea that we've summarized is there in our story. It's true as an Old Testament shadow. But now I want us to see that this big idea is also true 
in New Testament fulfillment. So now we go forward from, oh, this is around 900 BC or something. So we're going forward 900 years to what we think of as New Testament era. And we're still asking a question, Solomon's question. Will God indeed dwell with man on earth? And what is our answer? Reading John chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1. Our answer is yes. Yes, God will dwell with man on earth. It's why the season of Thanksgiving so naturally merges with what's called a season of Advent, when we decided to give special attention to that coming that was awaited for hundreds and hundreds of years. This question still hung in the air long after the temple was built. It hung in the air when the temple was destroyed. It hung in the air during the captivity and the return when they built a kind of a shabby little temple compared to Solomon's. And the question still lingered, will God indeed dwell with men on earth? And John tells us with absolute clarity, yes, he will. The glory of God will dwell among us, tabernacle among us, temple here among us, and we will behold that glory. Yes. And so the big idea is true in the New Testament, not as shadowy questions, and I wonder how that'll be fulfilled, but in substance and in reality. God makes his presence known. How? In the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Son of God, taking on, in addition to his divine nature, human nature. Hence that word incarnation, becoming flesh. So he's God and he's man, the incarnate Christ. And then when Christ ascends to the throne, you could read about it in Acts chapter 1. As he goes into the heavens, Acts chapter 2, we're told what he's doing, sitting at the right hand of God and pouring out the Holy Spirit. So God makes his presence known in the incarnation of Jesus Christ and then in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, his presence among his people and his presence in his people. Now, as we think of God making his presence known in its substance, in its reality, We're looking back at 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and thinking, man, the the wonder of fire from heaven, sacrifices being consumed, people worshiping because glory has filled the temple. I want to remind you that, that God hasn't forgotten to give us indications of those things being shadows that would have their fulfillment. When God made his presence known in Christ temporarily and then the presence of God in God the Spirit more permanently for us in the church age, do you remember what it looked like when God's Spirit 
was made known when God's presence came to dwell among us in Acts chapter 2. It was in the form of tongues of fire. God was making his presence known, and Jesus had tried to prepare his disciples for this when he says, I'm going away, and he has to tell them in John 14, don't let this trouble you. I'm going, but in a sense, I'm coming. God the Son is going, but the Spirit of Christ, God the Spirit, is coming. He will come and be with you. When he is handed out, the gospel writer says, receive that Holy Spirit. And when that Spirit is poured out, it's in the form of fire from heaven. Well, what about sacrifices being consumed? We don't see that at Pentecost. But Paul is mindful to remind us that every believer that has experienced fire from heaven and the indwelling of the Spirit is supposed to be a living sacrifice, Romans 12 says. So indeed, sacrifices are still being consumed. The question is, have you crawled off the altar or not? You're supposed to be a living sacrifice so that when God makes his presence known, your life is given as a sacrifice, whatever you want. I'll seek first the kingdom, a living sacrifice, because God has been merciful, my life will be given as a sacrifice. His glory filling his temple. Quite tangibly in 2 Chronicles 7, Not too hard of a stretch to see the glory of God filling his building in the New Testament. Because corporately, we are the church. Some of the references to God's building are to his church, corporately. And so the Holy Spirit dwells in the building of God's house. This is Peter's language. We are each living stones And stones together build the house of God where God's presence and glory will be made known. Ephesians adds that even spiritual darkness will see God's glory filling his church and marvel at the mystery and power of the gospel. Individually, we are told that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And Paul would write to the church at Ephesus that as that temple Be filled with the Spirit. And so it's true in the New Testament, but in a greater way than even 2 Chronicles 7, that God has made his presence known in the incarnate Christ and in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, evidenced by fire from heaven, sacrifices consumed, and the filling of God's dwelling place with his glory. And so what is the response? We, like the people of 2 Chronicles 7, worship. We bow down, perhaps with our faces to the ground. Have you ever? And we just worship. We're completely overwhelmed by God and his goodness and his faithfulness. Some of you know what it is to be overwhelmed by like horrific, tragic news. Maybe you've been with someone and you've seen literally the life drain out of them and they faint. Or they can't even stand up and they collapse into a chair in overwhelming sorrow or something. 
This is the nature of worship that when God makes himself known, people bow. It's just, it's just natural. It just happens. They respond in worship. It was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. As God makes his presence known, his people respond with worship. And all of that New Testament unfolds what it's like to live together as God's church and how they gather on the first day of the week and what they do. They hear preaching and they speak to themselves in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. The word of Christ dwells in them richly so that it pours out on others. Then they go about their week and Acts says they go house to house breaking bread. There's relationship and mutual benefit and help. Peter adds this whole theme of we're pilgrims on this journey and we're kind of all in this together. Hanging on to these promises that we're going to make it all the way to the promised land. We're going to make it to our inheritance because God is faithful. We worship in response to God's presence being made known. Hopefully we love Thanksgiving and Christmas not because of big meals and big presents, but because of our big idea this morning, that God has made himself known, savingly, in a person, Jesus, and we've seen him. By faith, we rest in him and trust that his righteousness will be ours. Our guilt became his, so we're forgiven. And when this life ends and this body fails, we'll receive a new body, an eternal life the resurrection. We worship in response to what God has revealed of himself, that he is not only maker and creator, but he is savior and Lord. And our thanksgiving should sound something like, God is good. He's faithful. And so just start your list on the back of your bulletin. How many people heard from me this week? God is good. God is faithful. Because that's the flow of the big idea. It's not just that our worship is some kind of inner feeling. No, it's a worship that is expressed so that people will know that God is good and his steadfast love endures forever. So this big idea that when God reveals himself, we worship in response, saying, I see the goodness. I see his faithful covenant love. That idea was true in the shadow of our text in Chronicles 7. It's true in the New Testament, in its substance, in its reality. Lastly, we conclude with the ought. What must be so? Observably, it is so in Chronicles. Observably, it is so in the New Testament but it must be so in our present obedience that God reveals himself and we must respond in worship. It's true in our present obedience. Obedience to what? To the commands of thanksgiving. Remember, this is God's will that we be thankful. We tend to think thanksgiving can only happen like when we're wowed by something. That big gift from 
mom and dad for your birthday. And it's like, oh, don't forget to be thankful because that's what we do. We thank, well, our text isn't saying wait around for the next thing and then be thankful. No, the next thing is here. God, he's good. His steadfast love endures forever. So hear the commands of scripture. What are they? You heard them in Psalm 100. Give thanks. You say, well, I just don't feel... No. Give thanks. Well, you don't understand. My life's really hard. Back to our command. Give thanks. We are not without compassion to the people who say, my life is hard, or you don't know what's going on right now, or this is what has happened in this past year, or we've just had this funeral, or we... That's all true. But the command doesn't go away. Give thanks and bless his name. You see, the question of, well, how do I give thanks when life is hard is found in the second command. Give thanks to him, bless his name. It's not bless his providence in my good circumstances. No, it's bless his name, his name which overrides all circumstances, his name which providently ordains all circumstances, his name which is the great goal of why you're living and breathing, why the Psalms could say everything that has breath, praise the Lord. He's worthy of it. That name is worthy. So praise it. Hear these commands of thanksgiving. They're not suggestions. They're not if life is good or if the family makes it in town or if the turkey's not too dry or anything else. It's no, just do this. All that other stuff is supposed to be just a reminder. That, that, that's just a, a sampling. It's, it's shadowy kind of stuff compared to the God who has revealed himself in Jesus for the salvation of sinners. You see, there will be Christians who have very little on the table for food Thursday afternoon. Christians around the world who are struggling and suffering. And this command will ring true to them as much as it does to you. Give thanks. Bless his name. For the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. You see, God has made himself known to you. In the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God took the form of humanity, making God known. By his sinless life, he has clothed you as a priest in robes of salvation. Solomon ended his prayer of dedication recognizing this sin problem was going to mess up Thanksgiving. What we need is this clothing of salvation. Let your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. Well, Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. Shadows in Solomon's prayer. Priests robed in salvation. Substance, this is what Christ came to accomplish. By his substitutionary atonement, Jesus Christ has dealt once and for all with the matter of forgiveness. If 
the people sin, if they sin, if they rebel, if they sin. Solomon kept praying it, knowing it's going to be a problem. Solution, God makes his presence known in Christ. And on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Solomon's prayer answered. And so what do we do? We respond in worship. Maybe with our heads bowed around a Thanksgiving table. Maybe on a walk where you get a little charismatic and like Solomon, lift your hands or find a place to kneel and just bow in humble adoration as we sing. But we respond in worship because that's the flow of the big idea. When God reveals himself, his people respond in worship. And God has scripted the opening lines of your Thanksgiving worship with these words, the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. In the days of this Thanksgiving week, you can fill in the rest of that script. So Heavenly Father, thank you for coming to us since we could not come to you. Thank you for saving us since we could not save ourselves. May you receive honor and glory in the praise of our thanksgiving this week. As we proclaim and demonstrate your goodness and your faithfulness, may it be like the sacrifices of old, consumed by that fire and that smell that would, would waft through all the congregation and up into the skies. So we want our sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving to drift to you and for you to be pleased because you're worthy of this, our worship, that we would offer through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.